0: Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in the gospel of John and uh, John chapter 7 and uh, picking up in verse 14 where we left off last week and continuing on to verse 24 today and the theme of our message today is really more of a question and it's a question I want us all to ask ourselves and the question is this is how do we see how do we see Uh, when I was in fourth grade I was in Miss Trammell's class. And, and on this particular day, going to Miss Trammell's class, I went and we had a visitor in, in class that day. And I, I think they were wearing scrubs. I'm not hundred percent sure, but they walked in and they took a, they took a big chart, an eye chart, and they put it up against one end of the room. And, and then uh, one by one in front of our classmates, they called us up and put a spoon over one of our eyes and they asked us to, to, they would point to a line and they would say, read this line. And so, uh, I don't know if they still do that in schools, but that's, that's how they did it. Uh, in fourth grade in Ms. Trammell's class when I was in school. And let me just tell you, I completely bombed. I bombed the eye test. The, The next thing I knew I was at an optometrist office and they put, uh, what all I know to call it is the Starship Enterprise in front of my face. And it has all those different lenses in it. And if you've ever been in that chair, you know what it's like. They'll be like, okay, which one looks better? Lens one or lens two? Okay, lens two or lens three? Okay, lens three or lens one? It's just like this constant, like, which lens looks better? And and after all of that, I ended up uh, getting glasses. And uh, and so every day since I've I've been in fourth grade, Uh, I have either had contacts in my eyes or when my contacts are in, my glasses are on. Because literally, if I take them off, y'all all all are just a big blur to me right now. I I can't, I literally, I can't, I cannot see anything. And and here's what's crazy, is that without even really knowing it for 10 years of my life or or thereabouts, I never saw the world that it truly, the way it truly is. The way it truly was, in some ways, my vision was blurry and that I didn't even realize it. And so here's the here's the reality is that every one of us today, every single one of us, whether you wear contacts, whether you wear glasses, whether you wear readers, whether you, uh, you know, had maybe an eye surgery somewhere along the way and you can see better now or like me, my parents or my kids for Father's Day last week. They gave me my first large print Bible, which uh, I'm thankful for, but it just got real. You know, when when that happened, I got my my first large print Bible or you may be here and you're like, I I see great to which I would just say, enjoy that blessing. (laughs) Enjoy that blessing. But whether you have vision impaired or whether you see perfectly, the truth is all of us, every single one of us, we see our world through a specific lens We see our world through a lens and that that lens is called our worldview. Every single one of us have a worldview and our worldview, the way we see our world, it's like an it's like a it's like a a mixed bag of all of these different influences over our lives. And it begins as early as we can begin to learn. And so our worldview is shaped perhaps by the home that we grew up in. Perhaps our worldview is 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 influenced by the way our parents uh, invested in us or our grandparents or perhaps a mentor or a coach or a teacher. The way they poured into our life, it affected the way you viewed your world. It could have been that your view of the world was impacted by what you would call your heroes or maybe music or movies or uh, in our world, social media like. All of these different things influence our lives and they influence the way we see our world. All of us see our world through a lens. And that lens is called a worldview. I think about it when I was a kid I used to I never I don't think I've ever played the game dominoes, but I used to love to stack them and then knock them over and watch them like one fall right after the other. When I was a kid I'd make that line as many dominoes as I had and I would make these little twists and turns. But here's the thing, when the first domino fell, it affected every other domino after that. And so I say that picture because the first domino, the way we view our world is our worldview. And the way we view the world impacts every single area, every single uh, decision, everything we think, say or do, it, it roots itself in the way we view world our world. And so a study was done and I I read it last week. A research study was done at Arizona uh, Christian University. Uh, And this study was of 2000 adult Americans. It was a cross section uh, from from kind of all ages of of adults. And they specifically asked, what is your worldview? And of those 2000 people that were surveyed, here's what the results were. 6% 6% of those 2,000 people said that they had a biblical worldview. And so a biblical worldview is one where you believe the Bible to be God's revealed truth and that it is the standard for measuring all other supposed truth. You view it through the lens of Scripture. 6% of people said they had a biblical worldview. The next uh, largest percentage of people was 2%. And 2% of people said, I have a secular humanistic worldview. And basically what that means is that I don't need God. I can be fulfilled and accomplish all that I desire to accomplish through myself. It's a secular humanistic worldview, 2% of people. And then another 1% postmodernism that was their worldview. What that basically means is they promote doing your own thing, even if it means redefining truth as it relates to them, or reality. They can kind of change the rules of the game to be what they want to be truth. Another 1% hold to nihilism, another 1% to Marxism. And here's the thing, out of all those 2,000 people, uh, those six categories... Of those six categories, that makes up just 12% of the entire people who said, I hold to a specific worldview. I share that because that means that 88% of the other people do not claim to have a worldview, but rather they have have a a kind of a, a mixed bag. It's called syncretism. Maybe they hold to some biblical truth, and so they take a little bit of that. And maybe they hold a little bit to this truth that seems and feels right. And so they hold on to that. And what it is, is they have a syncretic worldview that basically means I don't prescribe to any specific worldview. I just kind of have my own bag of what I believe is right. And so here's the thing about the worldview. Like dominoes, your worldview will impact what you believe. And what you believe will impact what you value and what you value is gonna impact the actions and decisions that you make as an individual. And I would just say this, and I know it's no shocker coming to church today to hear this, but I just sense the stakes are high and we are in absolute critical time in our culture that as believers, we must be absolutely committed To a biblical worldview. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, but in your hearts, and he's talking to the church, he said, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. That now more than ever. That as believers, we must be absolutely committed and ready to give an answer for what we believe, for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in just a moment, we're going to jump into uh, John chapter 7. And the culture that we're going to jump into is a culture that is growing more and more hostile to Jesus, to who he says he is, and to the authority of his word. And it's not apples and apples, but I sense that in our day, there is a growing hostility toward the truth, the absolute truth that is found in Scripture. Our our culture seems to be growing more and more hostile. There is a battle for life that we are seeing in our culture. And on just this past Friday, I praise the Lord as I know it is the fruit of much work and many prayers But after almost 50 years, the Supreme Court overruled Roe versus Wade, which eliminated the constitutional right to take an innocent life. And then in that now it's turned to the states and obviously there'll be more decisions to make. But this is a this is an incredible, incredible moment in our history. And that now as the church has always been a a resource in pouring into women's pregnancy centers, and being engaged in foster and adoptive care, and coming alongside single moms and single dads, and loving on them, and encouraging them, and by God's grace, helping and pouring into them, now as much as ever the church must double down to be a a resource center for these families who are walking through these incredible decisions. There's a, a, a highlight of, The month that we're wrapping up on LGBTQ, there is a secularization of our culture. The political division is so obvious and almost tangible that we see in the nation and that we live in. But here's the encouragement. Is that Christ, as we're going to see in the text, is going to find himself in a culture that is growing more and more hostile to him, but yet he is engaged in the culture and in his grace, he is sharing his truth and his truth was authoritative then and it is authoritative now for us today in this hour that we live. And so here's a main idea of our text this morning. And that is this, the divinity of Christ and the authority of his word shape the way we see and understand everything. 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 Everything, the divinity of Christ and the authority of his word, they shape everything we see and understand. And so let's jump into John chapter seven, verse 14. The Bible says this, it says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So we're just going to get our bearings for a moment. Uh, This is the feast of booths, also known as the feast of tabernacles. Some call it the feast of shelters. And so this was one of the three major pilgrimage feasts that Jews would take. Uh, they actually lived within a certain area of Jerusalem. They, they had to go there. It was the law. And so they went there. And at this festival, it was, it was, I think, what had to be the kids' favorite of the feast because it was a big camp out. It was a big camp out. Even if you had a home there in Jerusalem, you literally would build a shelter or a booth outside of your home or up on, your, up on the, the attic or up on the, the, top, the rooftop. And you would build this rooftop and you would sleep under the stars for a week. And so why? Why would they celebrate this festival? Well, it would remind the Jewish people of their ancestors. It would be remind them of God's faithfulness and God's provision and God's care as they wandered through the wilderness and how they slept under the stars. And so they would remember God's faithfulness in that, in that feast. And so in verse 15... The Bible says that the Jews, therefore, marveled. They marveled at his teaching. They said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, maybe perhaps you've had an opportunity to go to to Jerusalem. Uh, I hope that as a church, we get to do a a trip uh, in in one of these uh, years in the not too distant future. But you can go to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is still standing You can walk where Jesus walked. The temple mount is there. And so it's this 35 acre complex. It's vast. And and at the time of Jesus, they had two large porticos or covered porches and rabbis or teachers would go. They would teach lessons. They They would share wisdom. They would tell stories. And so Jesus has come to the temple and he began teaching and they marveled. They marvel. Jesus is speaking and teaching Scripture in a way like they've never heard anybody before. And when you read through the Gospels, anytime Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, you will see that the people marveled at the way that Christ taught. Why? Because he had that unique authority and that he is is God. And so as he's teaching, they're hearing him and they're like, they say in verse 15, How is is it this man is learning? When he's never studied. So those are there. There were were rabbi schools there. And and if you wanted to be a rabbi, uh, there's a really lengthy process of doing that. And So you essentially go to Bible school, rabbi school. And if you want to be a rabbi, you go through that school. They teach you the Torah. They teach you the Talmud. They teach you uh, what it means or what it looks like to be a rabbi and all these different things. And they're like, I've never seen you. I've never seen you in the schools. They're basically saying, How do you know all this stuff and you never went to Bible school? How do you know all this stuff and you never went to seminary? But here's what Jesus says in verse 16. He answered them. He said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And so Jesus could have said in that moment, I'll tell you how I know all of this truth. I'll tell you how I'm teaching with such authority. He could have said, because I am God. And He is God. But yet He's talking, remember He's talking to, He's talking to a bunch of super um, committed Jews. Very committed to their faith, love the Old Testament, treasure the Old Testament. And as they would treasure the Old Testament, they would know that God would send, He would send messengers to communicate His truth to them. And so Jesus is communicating who He is to them. Them. So they are listening and they're leaning in as God is giving his teaching in the flesh. In verse 17, Jesus said, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God and whether I am speaking on my own authority. John 17 17 literally reads like this If any man is willing to do his or God's will, He shall know. He will know. And I love what Jesus is doing because what he is doing is he is connecting their hearts and their heads. Their hearts and their heads. That this is just not mere intellectual assent and an agreement to fact. This is truth traveling from the mind to the heart. And Jesus is teaching when you have a humble heart, When you have a heart of surrender, that when you come to the word ready and willing to listen and surrender to God's direction for however he may live, however he may lead, that surrender paves the way to spiritual understanding. And that's important for us to hear because I'm all for Bible knowledge. It's very important. That's a part of why we have Bible studies. That's a part of why we gather around the word on Sunday mornings. But, but spiritual depth does not equal spiritual knowledge. You could, you could go to somebody's house and somebody throw up biblical or Bible trivial pursuit and you could dominate. Like you could own everybody. But if it's pure information and the information has not traveled from your head to your heart, then, then, then you have completely missed it. We've completely missed it. Spiritual depth is obedience. And obedience is spiritual depth. Jesus said it this way, or Jesus' half-brother James. He said this, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so spiritual depth comes as a heart is yielded and surrendered to however God would lead. If you humble yourself before God's truth to know it, to obey it, You will know his word is true. I love what King David said to his son Solomon. In 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9 he says, And you Solomon my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And I love what he says right here. If you seek him, if you seek God, if you seek him, he will be found by you but if you forsake him he will cast you off forever now for about 12 years of when i, I i'll just be honest i never in a million years thought god would call me to to be a, a shepherd to be a pastor my route was i graduated college i was working at an insurance agency an insurance company and i thought that was going to be the plan for the rest of my life god had a god had a different plan. But the first 12 or so years of serving in ministry, I served as a student pastor and and I had so many conversations with hungry, seeking students and they would come because they would have they would struggle with doubts and struggle with trusting God. And and even so, their parents would would come and they would be very concerned. And over the years, I've had conversations with adults. I've had conversations with senior adults. All kinds of ages, where they're in this place of seeking and 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 working through, trusting and believing. And here is the encouragement in all this that that isn't a, that isn't a reason to be discouraged. Because here's what I know and what I believe with all my heart. Jesus is is instructing here, and it's what King David was telling his son Solomon is that when you when a when a seeker seeks. With a genuine heart of humility and desire to know the truth of God. That God will make himself known. That is a great, great encouragement. And so in verse 18, the Bible says, Jesus says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. And so Jesus graciously is giving us a litmus test for a false teacher. Red flags are warnings, typically, right? If you go to the beach and the, 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 ray, the red flag is up, it means don't go, right? I think that's what it means. Don't go. Red means stop. Well, well, Christ is graciously waving two red flags. And these red flags are to discern false teachers that are in our world. The first red flaggy waves is that they boast in their own authority, that they bring attention to themselves, the power in themselves, the power of their words. That is a major red flag, and that is a warning of a false teacher. And then he also says, if that person hungers for glory. that is a a red flag that is to be discerned. And so if it's all about them and it's all about that authority, that is a major, major red flag. Jesus talks about the religious leaders, those self-righteous leaders this way in Matthew 23, verses 5 and 7. He says this, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. So the purpose that they would do an act of goodwill, compassion, is so they can be seen by other people. The Bible says, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. A phylactery phylactery was a wooden box that they would hold uh, Hebrew scriptures in. And so it's kind of like the bigger the box, like uh, the more impressive they want people to see. Verse six, they love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And they love to be called rabbi by other people. So it was all for this. Self-righteous motivation. Those are red flags, but Christ, Christ speaks on his authority. So in verse 19, he goes on to say, he says, has not Moses, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. (laughs) He just just calls them out. He just is exposing their, their self-righteousness there on the spot. Has not Moses given you the law? Now, remember the Jews treasured the law. They treasure the Old Testament law. They strive to keep it. Because if they could keep it in their own strength, then that for them means and leads to salvation, being rescued. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the law has absolutely zero power. Keeping the law has zero power to forgive your sin and to save you. So Jesus communicates that the law serves a purpose. The law is Right and holy. It's right and holy. But the problem is it's, it's like a mirror. And it shows us that we're not good enough to keep his law perfectly. Paul said it this way in Romans 3, 19 and 20. There, Verse 20, the last, the last line says, Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying, Listen, in all of your striving, in all of your striving, you still fall short. That there are many out there that believe that at the end of their lives, that if somehow, way, their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds, that, they, that, that they're going to be in good shape when this whole thing's over. But the problem is that is that nobody is good enough. Nobody is good enough to spend eternity to heaven. That even on your best day, we still fall short. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy, God is perfect, God is righteous. So he's communicating to them. And these Jewish leaders are striving. But guess what also they're doing? They're striving all the while they're trying to break 10 commandment number six, which says thou shalt not kill. Kills against the law. And so what does Jesus say? Why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? This is rooted back in John five when he was there, probably at this same feast about a year ago. We don't know which face the the feast the Bible doesn't say, but it says he went to the pool of Bethesda. There was a man who had been laid paralyzed for 38 years of his life. Jesus brought complete and total healing to his body, and he did so on a specific day. Does anybody know what day it was where he healed the paralyzed man? It was the Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. That's the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders lost their minds when Christ healed on the Sabbath day. Matter of fact, John five eighteen says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So kind of closed door conversation, religious leaders are plotting a plan to take the life of God. In verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And, and you have a demon. The, my translation is, you are completely nuts. You've lost your mind. They're saying, you, you have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Now remember, that we've got a mixed crowd here. They, they, by majority, they're probably not aware of the, the plot to kill Christ by the religious leaders. And so they're like, what, what are you talking about? In verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. He's speaking back to healing that man on the Sabbath day at the pool of Bethesda. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Verse 22, he says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take a lesser truth and he's going to teach a greater truth. Because the practice of circumcision preceded the law. Moses gave the law. The act of, 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 um, the act of, of circumcision, it preceded the Mount Sinai. It preceded when the law had ever came. Do you read about in Genesis 12, Leviticus 17? God gave that, 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 uh, that instruction to Abraham. And so a Jewish male would be circumcised on the eighth day. That would be a sign of the covenant between God and his people. Now, here's the thing. Here's the reason Jesus is teaching this is because depending on what day they were born, the eighth day could fall on a Sabbath. It could fall on Sabbath. So so what happens then? Well, they felt circumcision was more important than the law of keeping the Sabbath holy. And so Jesus is saying, okay, hold on now. Again, my translation. (laughs) You're excusing in yourself what you're accusing me of. And if we're not careful, we can do this in our lives. That we can be very quick to excuse in ourselves what we see in other people. And we see that brokenness and we bring accusation in areas in our own lives that, that we excuse in our lives. In verse 23, the Bible says, if on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a a man's whole body well. So you're you're mad at me because I brought complete and total healing to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years of his life. And what's happening is Is he's exposing their self righteousness? He's exposing their sin in a culture that is hostile to the divinity of Christ and hostile toward the authority of His word. I almost think it's like a like a like like I think of an old kind of broke down hotel. You flip the light on and the roaches scatter, And, and and so the light is on. And what Christ is doing is He's exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing their sin. And when we view our lives against the backdrop of the holiness of God, we become keenly aware of our own sin in our lives as well. And here's what Jesus says in verse 24. And this is where we'll we'll wrap up this morning. But Jesus says this, he says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, what he's saying is, You have a worldview. You have a lens that you're looking at me through. You are looking through a secular worldview. And as you view me, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, put aside your secular, self-righteous worldview. And with right judgment, I want you to look at me. And I want you to hear my word and I want you to understand who I am. And Jesus is encouraging them and he's inviting the culture to examine him and to believe and to receive him. And then when we see the world through the lens of scripture, we understand the world as part of a much bigger story. Because what happens is, is that God has given us his word and it's authoritative and it begins in Genesis and it begins in Revelation and he's entrusted to us and it tells one big story all the way through. And the one big story is called God's redemptive narrative. It's his story and it answers life's biggest questions because the world may ask the world who has a worldview that seems right. May, may ask the question, well, well, then where did we come from? God answers that question. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you are created in the image of God and that you are created for a relationship with Him. Well, then why in the, why in the world, why is the world so evil? And why is it so broken? Why all, the, why all this division and brokenness? The Bible teaches us in Genesis 3. Because God's creation decided to depart from God's design and God's way and go their own way. And every time you choose to go your way other than God's way, it leads to a place of brokenness every single time. And what happens is man tries to do all they know to do to heal this brokenness. But the only thing or the reality is, is that there's nothing we can do to fix our brokenness. And that departure from God's design is called sin. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us That he died for you, that he came and lived a perfect life, that he was crucified on the cross for our sin, that he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. He's the only way. They placed him in, a, I love what the Bible says, a borrowed tomb because he only needed it for a few days because on the third day he rose again, proving as the power to forgive our sin. How can this be made right? God will one day make all things new, but he has made a way to be forgiven and to be healed and to be made right with God. And that is through a relationship with him. And so with the divinity of Christ and the authority of his word, this affects absolutely everything, the way we see everything and understand everything in our life. And I love what Jesus does is there. Once he, 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 he reveals himself Is God in the flesh and he communicates his word to them. He invites them to examine who he is and to place their faith and to place their trust in him. And he does the same thing today for everybody who has ears to hear, who has ears to hear. And so as believers, how do we process this? And so I want to share a couple thoughts from the text. How can we be certain that we have a biblical worldview. And I I would just say this. I I think if we took a poll, if we we had all the believers in the room and we asked this question, do you think it's important to have a biblical worldview? I'm certain across the board it would be yes. But the question becomes, how do we cultivate a biblical worldview? It does not happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by hoping for the best. But rather, how intentionally do you cultivate this Biblical worldview, worldview that is absolutely essential in this hour that we are living in. And so, so I would like to share three, three areas. And the first one is that it all starts with intimacy with the father, that you would love God, that you would love God, that you would devote time to investing in your personal relationship with King Jesus And that when you spend this time in his word, loving him, when we come as he invites us to with a yielded, surrendered. If you leave me, I'll obey God. When we come with that heart, what happens is our self-righteousness is exposed in those areas of our lives that don't bring glory to him. He graciously convicts us of those areas. But here's the beautiful thing. He doesn't just bring conviction. He gives us the grace and strength to rest in forgiveness and his power to move forward in victory. And so we must love God above everything else. it's, It's coming to God and being like, you know what? I have an opinion about this situation. I have an opinion. I have an idea of what seems right to me. But when you have a biblical worldview and you intentionally spend time in your love relationship with God, you come with the heart of God. But what do you say about this? What is your opinion? What is your word? What is your authority? I trust you. I trust your design. I trust your best. And so it's coming with that heart that his word is authoritative no matter what. No matter what. And then I just feel it's important to share a, just an encouraging word of as parents, particularly, I realize we've got many parents in the room and some with grown kids and some are out of the house and some with grandkids. And we've got many kids in here with us right now. But I'm humbled with this great blessing, but also responsibility, a responsibility to invest in my child's life, to form a biblical worldview. One of my boys, Sheppy, he turned 10 years old yesterday. And uh, when they turn 10 years old, it's like a rite of passage age for them. And so we take them away uh, and we talk about we talk about all kinds of stuff. And we went fishing and, and I'm. Kind of embarrassed and proud. My son beat me in in fishing. Um, Hey, Sheppy, you weren't supposed to do that, by the way. I was supposed to win, but he beat me. He caught more fish than daddy. But here's the deal. We went and had fun, but here's why we went. We spent the time continuing the conversation of what God has to say about relationships, about friendships, and how we view the world through scripture how we view the world through his authority. And so we have a great responsibility, but don't be scared or overwhelmed or nervous. God is faithful, but it begins with loving God and nurturing God's word in our hearts. The second, we love God and then we love people. We love people. Now you can maybe already kind of sense what that third one's gonna be, but hang with me for a second. Love people. I'm not saying agree with all people, and I'm certainly not saying affirm sin in other people. But what I am saying is God help us not to grow cynical toward people who are far from God. This is very easy to do. Don't miss Christ's example. That if ever God could be cynical against a sinful creation. He absolutely has every right to. But yet in his grace in his love and in his care. He meets us where we are. And he brings His truth and he reveals his nature to us. So God, help us guard our hearts. Help us to be sensitive toward people. Help us not to become hard hearted toward people. I mentioned uh, or last week I had gone to the Southern Baptist Convention out in Anaheim, California about a week and a half ago. And I took my oldest with me. Uh, And we we had some open times. And so we went to Hollywood one day and walked down Hollywood Boulevard. And it's really cool. The first star I saw was Billy Graham's star. And uh, and I thought that was awesome. But there's stars all over the place. And I didn't check the news or even see what was going on in Hollywood that day when we went. But it happened to be uh, an LGBTQ uh, uh, pride parade. And there were thousands thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And as we were there, we were walking. And even my son, he had a sensitivity and he had a burden. Because he saw these multitudes that have departed from God's design. Departed from God's best. And as we were walking, I told him, I was like, son, I said, I know this is hard to see. And I said, I know that, that your heart is burdened. I said, but never forget this. God loves every single person on this planet and desires to have a relationship with them. Never forget God to see, to see people through the lens of God's grace and compassion. And so God help us to love him above all to love people. And what do you think? The third one is love God, love people live sent, live sent, live sent, engage the culture. I'm saying that use wisdom. Use wisdom. God's given us wisdom. He offers to give it to us for free. So we use wisdom, but we must engage culture. We cannot insulate ourselves from the world. Because here's the question, and and Romans tells us, how will they know unless someone is sent? How will they know? So God help us to engage culture and not to insulate, but that we are ready to give an answer And that we're able to do so with gentleness and respect with God's word and God help us to see all of the world, everything we see and experience through the lens of scripture. And we rest in the divinity of Jesus Christ. And we rest in the authoritative nature and gift of his word. And that it's through his grace that we see and understand everything that we see in our world and God invites us to love God, to love people and to live sin. And I would just say this, perhaps you're here today and you're listening in and you would say, if the question was this, do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you were to answer that question, no, I would just say God's authoritative word is so clear about his love for all people. And that he desires a relationship with you. And it is only through a relationship with him, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that when you repent of your sin and you trust in him as Lord, he will save you, he will forgive you. And so, what he does is he examines, he he invites the culture into which I think through the word he's inviting the seekers today. He's saying this examine me, judge rightly. And what you will discover is that I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for loving sinful people to which I am at the top of that list. God, thank you that you went to the feast that day. Thank you, God, that you engaged the culture in the way that you did, revealing your divinity and your power and your might and your grace. God, thank you for the life giving words found in the scriptures that are authoritative, are absolutely true, and that you have gifted us. And so, God, I pray as believers. That above all, we would nurture our relationship with you, God. That we would repent of the areas we know that don't bring you glory, God. That we would uh, be intentional, Father, to, uh, to, to, uh, to seek out your desire, your will, your way, your best, your opinion over ours, God. We value your word above ours. Your thoughts are above ours. Your ways are above ours. We know that. So God, may we rest in that. God, I pray, may we be a people and specifically in our homes that we nurture an essential biblical worldview in which we will understand all that takes place in our world through the authority of your scripture and through the divinity of your son that gave up his life for us so that we could be free. God, help us to love people. It's so hard sometimes not to just... Be hard-hearted toward those who are far from you. But God, the truth is you love them and desire a relationship with them. So God, help us to engage the culture in a way that honors you in the way that we are ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. So God, I love you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for this. God inspired authoritative truth for our lives and may we bring our hearts and our lives under obedience and surrender and that's where spiritual depth and maturity take place and God for the soul who may be here and is living apart from a relationship with you that today would be the day that they would begin that relationship with you so God we love you and we praise you in Jesus name amen Amen, i invite you to stand with me. And as we do, this is a time really just to to reflect on what God has revealed to you through his word, his spirit, through the power of his word. And it could be that you're here. And you know what? You're just like, I need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody to pray for me. We'll have pastors here. who would love to pray over you. The altar's always open. But just know that this is a time to uh, yield our hearts to his word and his spirit's leading and be obedient in how he leads us.